Okay, are we going? We rolling. We rolling. Welcome to... Oh, sorry, let me try that again. <laughs> <laughs> you have to leave that in now. Okay, well, welcome to The Empty Salon. I am here with Matthew Catterhagen, the playwright of High Rise, our radio play, adapted from the novel by J.G. Ballard. Um, I'll be sitting with him today to talk about his work as well as the work of Ballard. I'll also be sitting down with the cast of High Rise and talking with all of them about their art. So all around, lots of art to talk about today. Um, and yeah, we are here with Matthew after several um, horrifying attempts at technology. Um, My laptop's very bad. Yes, it is. But, but hello. We're here. Hello, Matthew. How are hello. you? Hello. What's your name? Oh, my name. I am Jared. Hello. Jared. Wonderful. Jared McCarthy. I, Jared McCarthy. What a joy. I am the director of uh, High Rise. And I guess I'm the director of Empty Room as well. I don't know. But today I'm just a voice in the salon with you. You could call yourself like an artistic producer. I've been calling myself the spirit operative. Oh, I like that. But I guess I am technically That's a, so like, ethereal. an artistic director. It is ethereal, yeah. Well, Empty Room is an ethereal playhouse. Um, but yeah, so hello once again. Hello. <laughs> so um, where are you right now, geographically? Oh, okay. I didn't know if this was going to be like a, where are you spiritually? Well, you can um, answer that spiritually if you want. I can to. also do that. Um, uh, spiritually, spiritually, I'm well. I, I got classes that I needed for, uh, for returning to university life. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm excited about that. Geographically, I am uh, in Grass Valley. Um, it is uh, the gateway to the Sierra Nevadas. It's beautiful up here. It's oh. weirdly enough in the 70s. Okay. Uh, uh, in December, we hung okay. up holiday lights yesterday. Um, our cat has been a delight and a nuisance as always. Um, geographically, mentally, spiritually, physically, I feel like I'm in a good place right now. Great. Um, much, much different from the content of this play and yes. this book. Yes, much different, but. Um, and uh, I'm thrilled to say that I've known Jared now for uh, a surprising couple of years. Um, yeah. We, we both went to college together. You were a year behind me. Yes, um, correct. So um, we, how we really got, I would say, in in tune and in vibe with each other <laughs> was I, I, I had written this play on a whim because <clears throat> I've always been, I've always been interested in this book. I've always been interested in Ben Wheatley's uh, film adaptation of it. Um, it's just always been a very, it's always kind of been in the corner of my mind. And I think I, I was working with, uh, with the devised theater group and just seeing how they just kind of made everything from scratch and did so many things physically. I was like, I want to try that. So mm -hmm. I busted this out uh, and then nothing really happened with it until you reached out to me because for advanced directing, mm -hmm. um, we have to put on original works, like 20 minute original works um, as the final project. 
Um, I did this uh, with a with a Disneyland post-apocalyptic play, uh, <laughs> and you did it with High Rise. Yes, I did. We had a we hooted, we hollered, we had a great time of it. It was wonderful getting to hear it. Um, despite it being so specifically written for the stage. Mm-hmm. And uh, then you approached me about, uh, how long would you say after that? A year? Yeah, I think it was about a year because yeah. the original production was supposed to go up in the spring of 2020. And mm-hmm. as many people know, if they think back to the spring of 2020, is that everything shut down and fell apart. So That's so weird. I remember nothing bad happening. That's yeah, you should. It's be, really weird. Yeah. That's really interesting for you. I wonder if you're like, from <laughs> different timeline. am um, I in the, am I in the 1%? Um, oh no. <laughs> oh, that, Oh, what was going on? I don't remember. I was so busy on my cruise ship. Um, oh damn. Yeah, I was just would... on the calisthenics machine all day. <laughs> Yeah, you would not want to be on a cruise ship back in spring of 2020. Um, but no, so yeah, it are the plans for our stage production um, at the university fell through. And so we sort of did a kind of digital virtual yeah. rehearsal process. I kind of just wanted to take it as far as I could with the situation that we were in. So we we ended that, that semester with um, a bit of a staged reading only not on a stage. It was just sort of a, it was just a Zoom reading, reading. reading really. But um, yeah, then it was about, I would say, I think like a year, yeah, perfectly a year later. um, Because it was in March when I started kind of putting together the pitch. We originally wanted to pitch the production as a radio play to another company that I won't name, but um, another sort of fledgling online theater company or arts managing company um, for a fringe festival they were putting on. And so we, we submitted our production for that. It ended up um, not going with us, which was fine. It turned out being kind of a blessing because it would then take me months and months to (laughs) actually finish (laughs) editing the audio. So would never have been on time or on track for that program. But yeah, I'd say it was about a year later, so this play has been with us for quite a while, um, kind of looping back into our lives, um, which I find interesting for, you know, the content of yeah. both the play and the novel. But yeah. I think as with any good play, we've spent simply too much time with it. Simply too much, yes. And now we're ready to spend some more time with it by talking yeah. about it for like an we're hour. Chat, baby. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, if it's not clear, Matthew is a playwright. Um, he's also a director. He's also a screenwriter. He's also a drawer of pictures. Um, do a little bit of everything. I'm, everything. I'm circling back to my childhood dream of being a renaissance man. Exactly. Yeah. I zeroed in on playwriting and then it's expanded to directing and now it's all gone to hell. Now it's all, yeah, it's all shit. No. Um, so yeah, I guess that was my question is like, how are you trying to make what you are making? What are you making? Uh, so currently, currently I'm working on two plays, one of which is, I have a rough draft of, and I'm terrified to do a reading of it because it's like 109 pages and I don't want to put anybody through that. 
Um, I I must if it's going to go anywhere. Um, Hmm. And then I'm currently working on another play right now about um, about a mother who is under the full impression that the world is going to end and has decided to strike off on her own um, across as much of the world as she can muster, trying to document every single facet of life, be that people, sounds, places, um, but completely leaving her, her fully grown but very terrified child um jordan oyo to um essentially come home find that their mother is disappeared and have to go after her oh wow uh it's been a lot of fun to write yeah it's also been one of those plays where i've been i've been exploring the idea of documenting the end of time Mm -hmm. uh in multiple different facets and none of them have felt right and then Mm -hmm. i narrowed it down i kind of took the i took it in a more personal relationship kind of direction and it's it's sprouted from there it's it's really opened itself up to me and i'm really enjoying it that sounds that sounds amazing i love that concept um wow yeah documenting the end of time that is that's sort of um, my fledgling mission here with Empty Room as the kind of, as kind of, you know, radio theater at the end of time or the last spectral playhouse. I'm kind of projecting myself and my work and the work of others into the apocalypse, whether or not, you know, it's actually coming or not. Or if it's already here, which I think is more likely that it's just um, a constant slow apocalypse that's been going on since before we could recognize it, which is fine. Um... Later, as he sat on his balcony eating the dog, Dr. Robert Lang reflected on the unusual events that had taken place within this huge apartment building during the previous three months. Now that everything had returned to normal, he was surprised that there had been no obvious beginning no point beyond which their lives had moved into a clearly more sinister dimension. Cool. Okay, are we in? Okay. Hi, Ramon. Oh. Hello. How are you? I'm very Again. good. How are you? You're I'm also great. great. <laughs> yeah. Um, so here we are. We are in the empty salon. Um, you are the first one of the cast that I'm sitting down with Ooh. to talk with. Um, so yeah, I just, just a few questions that I sent you over already. I just kind of want to talk about your art, who you are as an artist. Um, so yeah, um, who are you? Where are you? Where do you call home? Well, I am based in LA County in this small hometown of Roland Heights, California. And I've pretty much been here majority of my life still am still am. um but yeah so I've been in Southern California my whole life and I guess it's where I call home and you know I'm pursuing acting so it's like not like I'm gonna move <laughs> right anywhere We're, else you, you have know, kind of close. two options you have here yeah. and you have New York I guess yeah pretty much but you know with the pandemic anything and everything who knows <laughs> Right, right. But the, the new Hollywood is going to be like in the middle in the Midwest or something. Maybe I don't know. 
<laughs> so yeah. So what do you do besides acting? Um, you you know, one of my main things that I just love doing is just kind of kind of just taking the time to get to know myself more. So mm-hmm. if I'm not doing acting, I'm you know exploring other um, arts. Like I recently got into pottery, mm-hmm. um, where I'm just exploring that realm, getting to know myself a little bit more. Reading, um, yeah, and kind of just kind of just taking the time. You know, I feel with this, you know, pandemic, post-pandemic, whatever you want to call it. Whatever we're um, in. Whatever we're in. Um, <laughs> this just really allowed me to just kind of slow down and kind of reorient and figure out what am I doing with my life. And right. All of that shenanigans. So I'm kind of just, I'm kind of just living in the present right now. Okay. Know? That's yeah. lovely. Very Southern California. Yeah. Living in the present. Um, I'm trying to. Yeah. But yeah. Oh, so what have you read lately? You said you, you're reading. Right now I'm reading this book called Awakening the Heroes Within. Oh. It talks about how we, everyone has these 12 archetypes in them. Mm. And it's kind of just getting to know those parts of ourselves that we aren't aware of and um awakening those heroes mm. within us to kind of just you know kind of just take control more take control of more, more of your life and right just, just yeah but, that sounds yeah. very mystical I read, a, I read a yeah I read a lot of those kind of spiritual kind of self-help kind of books right but, right know, <laughs> they don't teach teach us those things you know in our education system so it's like no there, you know it's kind of it's kind of almost like therapeutic yeah (laughs) mystical therapy books I love that yeah so why why pottery I so you all you also do photography right Mm -hmm. okay I've seen I've seen some of your work with Allison it's really fun and beautiful um there's that there's one photo you have on your Instagram of you with like you have like like dark makeup around your eyes you look Mm -hmm. very it's very cool but um but yeah, I want to talk about not photography. I want to talk about pottery because that right. feels very different from both acting and from photography. So, what drew you to pottery? Like, what do you what do you like to make? Like, what kind of vases? Um, it all started, you know, just being on I think YouTube, and then for some reason, my like the YouTube the videos that started showing up are like pottery videos mm-hmm. and just like people just making pottery and I was just so drawn to it how how handsy it is I mean you're literally using like just your hands and mm-hmm. like how 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 kind of specific you have to be with you know how, how hard you have to touch it how light you must touch it and just the I don't know just something to do with like being so specific with your hand movements really mm-hmm. caught my eye and just watching a bunch of videos it was just so relaxing and it, mm-hmm. it just made me want to do it like, <laughs> have you ever like watched someone do something you're like oh I want to do it so bad. I want to try it so yeah bad. yeah so I just I just bought like just a potter like the cheapest one I could find on Amazon <laughs> and just started experimenting with it and yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just been really also therapeutic and too, because, and it's one of those things where I feel like one of the first times where I just got something and started doing something without bringing, putting any expectations on myself. 
Oh, that's great. Like, no, like, like I'm not like searching for like, uh, like an end goal with it. I'm kind of just experimenting what it's like and, mm-hmm. you know, just having fun with it and being kind of creative with it. Cause some days I just, I don't even like try to make something like I just like play around with just it play with the just, clay yeah figure out how the clay moves and get to know it and yeah it's been very very kind of relaxing too that's lovely yeah I think that's really good for any kind of artist is to like have something that you don't have expectations for that mm-hmm. you're not really trying to like I don't know because I feel like with theater with our industry it's it's very much an industry like there's mm-hmm there are different pathways to kind of get into it. I mean, there are different definitions of success that everyone has, but I feel like especially for an actor, it's a lot of expectations that you put on yourself Mm -hmm. that others put on you. Um, So I think that's great that you just- I love how you said that, yeah. Expectations. Yeah, you're so right. Like, I think that's what also was such a, uh, with the pottery being such a, you know obviously like with pottery you do want to you have like you know make something and, right you don't want it to and, fall like, apart have, in the kiln yeah yeah you want to you want to have like an end product you know mm-hmm. but like with acting and you know going through like theater school and like sending in audition tapes and all of that it's always like a as an artist as an actor you're like okay I want I want to be good I want it to be perfect I want I want you know that right. perfectionism mm-hmm. part of oriented part of ourselves that wants to also be kind of validated with it but with pottery with just playing around with pottery just like no expectation just have fun right. with it you know yeah it was just less less stressful definitely that I enjoyed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I feel like um, in a way, like an actor is kind of like a piece of pottery, right? Like mm-hmm. when you're being yeah. directed, like you're kind of being sculpted. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, that may be, might be silly, but yeah. I think that's, that's yeah, pretty interesting. Like, yeah, my, my acting mentor um, and teacher describes like, you know, like when you're an artist, you're like the statue of David, you're you see that you have the marble, the piece of marble, and you're slowly chipping away. Right. And the chisel is like your imagination and your talent. And it's just slowly chipping away that as the artist, you have to see the David in the marble before. Right. Before it's even there. Yeah. Otherwise you can't make it if you can't see Mm -hmm. it beforehand. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's that's so profound. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. That's lovely. Yeah. I, I love pottery. I think it's, I've never done it before, but I have a great respect for any kind of art that is done with people's hands, like it's textiles so and, and sculpture. And yeah, I feel like it would be so relaxing. Like, I don't know. Although I always think of that scene from the movie Ghost. Ghost. Yes. yes. I, was yes. Just, I was just about to bring that up because I think ever... that was what one of my yeah. kind of influences <laughs> to discard pottery was that scene. That scene of like the it's romantic, so, like. Yeah, it was so romantic, intimate, but like, I don't know, something about it was just like, you're creating something beautiful and you're just mm-hmm. like, just feeling it. Right. Know. It's very hands-on and yeah. yeah, the the eroticism of the pottery oh, wheel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. and like great. when I, when I would post like videos of my pottery, oh, no. and some people would would comment like, "Why is this like 
sexy. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It just, it just is. And they're like sliding into your DMs, like, "Hey, do you wanna, do you wanna sculpt me like that?" <laughs> oh my gosh! But it's, oh gosh. You know, something about it is just so fun. And, yeah, that's lovely. Yeah. Uh, okay, so moving on a little bit. <laughs> um, moving on from the pottery wheel. Um, uh, yeah. So, how do we know each other? Like, uh, we've obviously we we were at the same school. This whole mm-hmm. cast, I know from from school, from studying university together, studying theater. But um, I don't remember when we met. I, I know we had, I know we had an acting class together, but I, was it, was it freshman acting or was it like sophomore acting? Was it Eve's class? I think Eve's class, yeah. Okay, yeah, then we have yeah. the same, we're on the we same memory. Okay. Yeah. That's how we know each other. And mm-hmm. I think the first thing that we kind of, what was the first thing we worked on? Was it, was it um, the piece that you wrote? Yeah, I think the one that Min directed, the, um, mm-hmm. what was it called? The Pretenders, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that one. That, Your play I, that you wrote. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know that. Well, I changed the title because I, I don't know, I was embarrassed by the title because I think there are other things already called The Pretenders that I didn't know about. And I was like, oh, I, I'm not meaning to reference something. Um, but yeah, that piece where where I wasn't a director, I was just sort of um, like in the playwright's position there, just sort of going through that. And that was a really interesting process. Um, and other than that, I mean, we've also... I did work with you as a director, obviously on High Rise, but um, before then we were working on Carol Churchill's Vinegar Tom together. Uh, I was assistant directing. You were the elusive Jack. Um, that was a show that never came to be, unfortunately, no. because of the the big shutdown. But but yeah, that was fun. Um, the, the ostrich play too. Oh, that's right, yeah. ostrich in the room. Before the directing I, intensive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was fun. Oh, I love that play so much. I love uh, Shannon's writing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we're just like saying random things that people don't know about. Yeah, but that's fun. What do you? What ostrich? 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 So yeah, uh, tell me sort of. So we've talked about your your exploration of the clay, but I want to know. What is your process like for for acting? I'm always intrigued by the actor's process because, I mean, I know a little, I used to think that I wanted to be an actor. um, So I sort of understand like what it's like to kind of be on stage and to go through the kind of different, like the aspects of building a character, um, Mm -hmm. much like sculpting. But I want to know what, how would you describe your process, your current process as you've kind of, because it's been like a year since we've graduated now and you've, you've been doing some work, you've been booked and blessed. Um, so yeah, what's, what, at least blessed, maybe not booked, but blessed. <laughs> blessed yeah. So yeah, yeah, what, what's your process like now? Um, yeah, like how you mentioned, like it's been a year and I would describe my process with acting is completely shifted post-grad um I just find that I feel you know going to theater school and taking a bunch of acting classes and I don't know that environment was very kind of like how we talked about kind of product oriented and trying to do things right and as much as you know they would try not to (laughs) at the end of the day we're doing this for a grade (laughs) right (laughs) yeah you know, and all that shenanigans. So 
I guess how my approach has shifted from being more left brain to more right brain. So less mm. analytical and less technical about acting and like, you know, um, being creative and being more, being more creative and more imaginative and mm-hmm. using more empathy, I would say. Empathy. Um, now. Great. Right. Um, Intuition, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah, because with, um, you know, with any creativity there in art in general, there is no right answer. Mm-hmm. There's no right or wrong answer. It's, it's, it's all about exploration. And yeah. So with my process now, I, it's, it's truly just learning to empathize more mm-hmm. and not separating myself from the part I'm playing. It's not a, mm-hmm. it's not a character I'm becoming. It's a part of me that a possibility of me that right oh I love that Mm -hmm. because I feel like when when you start separating yourself then then it's always going to be a character right rather than kind of like what you were saying about the the book you're reading the awakening the archetypes I like that a lot of like not necessarily seeing acting as like building a separate character that you know kind of can kind of goes away after it's over. Yeah. I like a lot what you've said about like, it's a another part of myself, another possibility that you're like deepening and exploring and bringing to the surface. I think mm-hmm. that is really lovely actually. Yeah, my acting mentor, I mean, she she talks about, you know, it's, it's nothing new that actors are doing. It's imagining, it's just total immersion. Like when you're a kid mm-hmm. at play. Right. You're not you're not you you're just fully immersed into the experience and like wanting to like have that play spirit and fully mm. believing that you're you know a superhero or you're a mermaid you know <laughs> you as a kid you're totally believe you're you're totally you're in a mermaid. it you're right superhero. and you're dealing with you know the situation as the mermaid as right you're um, the mermaid i'm the mermaid you know? <laughs> that's lovely wow but, yeah, so more right-brained. Right, more right-brained. Yeah, see, I don't, I don't know my rights from lefts, so <laughs> um, <laughs> that's lovely. Um, Awakening those heroes. So we've, we've kind of had two rounds with High Rise, right? Oh. Because so the this project it was originally meant to be kind of my final directing project in school, again, doing it for Mm -hmm. a grade. Um, And rather than staging it, because this was right back in March of 2020, right when everything shut down and we, it was kind of, we kind of thrown back and forth because it was, we sort of thought for like a couple of weeks that we were still going to be able to do it just under different circumstances. And then it was like, oh, we we aren't going to do it. We're all just going online. and rather than giving up, I was like, well, let's just keep going online and just see what we can do. So we we had a we had like a, a pretty thorough table work process for the first round um, that then culminated in a kind of like virtual reading, a staged reading that we gave to my class and got feedback. Um, I really wanted to give, you know, the cast and the playwright a chance to kind of at least if not get the work up, at least kind of see how the work moves. So we did that. And then 
of course, we've done it again now. <laughs> um, a year later, we've kind of come back to it with this idea of making it into a radio play. Um, I sort of saw this potential in this piece to kind of transfer from the stage to the radio. Uh, and so I kind of want to talk to you about that. Like what, what was that transference? Like, even though we were never really on the stage, we were kind of pretending as if we would be on the stage at some point, but um, we've kind of gone through the play twice now. And I, I think that it, the time between our first uh, like work through of it. And then now when we were tackling it for empty room, um, the meaning of the play kind of changed for all of us. Uh, yeah. So I want to know for you as an actor, like what was it like returning to this play and kind of coming at it with a new angle, a new psychology, I almost think. Yeah. I mean, I feel like since you know, working it toward working on it towards the end of you know our semester, and then going into the pandemic, and then so much has happened in that few months and yeah. <laughs> few year alone. And I feel like everyone's perspective has shifted, mm -hmm. and people are being awakened to things that they haven't haven't been paying attention to. And I think with what was going on at that time, and still does, it completely did. Like, like I remember going into the play for the, for the second round, we were going into it and absorbing it again and going, wow, like I have such a different lens, mm -hmm. like seeing it through a different lens now. And I think that was what was really exciting is that how this play can, you know, can shift, you know, throughout time. It's like, it kind of like aged really nicely. It did, it small, did. Small, short periods. It was so re relatable to what was happening. Right. So yeah, going into it the second time was just super, super exciting because it's, it strengthened what, what we wanted to say mm -hmm. and what we were going to say with this, this play. And yeah, it was very, very, very um I had a lot of gratitude going into this again so yeah yeah I'm really grateful that we kind of got to give it the life that I I felt like it deserved yeah. um I love what you said about about the play kind of aged it, it did <laughs> and I mean it, in the context of like the source material which is you know a novel from the 1970s mm -hmm. which yeah. has also kind of aged and not like it's no longer relevant I still think I still think Ballard's writing is really revealing of a lot of what's what what's going on um, and mm -hmm. I think part of that is because his work while is in this like speculative genre um, it's not really about the future it's often about the present mm -hmm. um, and the present is about the future uh, if that makes any sense because you know we're always thinking about what's coming next like what what's going to be down the line I think especially after or in the midst of the pandemic where it's sort of all sorts of uncertainty of like you know when are things going to reopen again and now they're reopened but it's like what is what is the end goal of you know this project of America right and so yeah I think being able to to come to this play twice we kind of see 
don't know, just more layers of the play yeah. kind of revealed itself to us. Whereas I think in our first round, we were very focused on kind of like the separateness of everybody and this idea of like everyone kind of locked away in their own apartments, like literally and also kind of like in a spiritual sense, there was a lot of like claustrophobia at the start of the pandemic. And now that it's shifted, the play has kind of become less about that and more about like, how do like how do we as individuals make actions? How do we yeah. try to make changes? Where do these where do mm-hmm. these projects like fail? Where do they continue? Like what you know, it's just interesting. So yeah, it's been yeah. it's been really cool to get two chances with this. And I love working with you. So um yeah. I'm yeah. So yeah, what what do you feel like as Lang, like ab- having absorbed yourself into Lang and like searched mm-hmm. for your own possible Langness, <laughs> um, what do you what do you feel like you're left with now that we've kind of gone through this? Like, where is Lang in you now? I think for me, Lang serves as a reminder of um, you know the parts of me that are complacent that are, you know, that aren't taking action um, or choosing to ignore certain parts of things because it's it's more comfortable or it's safer, safer you know? Mm. Um, I think one of my things that I say is it's easier. Right, you know? it's easier. It's easier to just be content because, mm-hmm. you know, because, yeah, and I think, you know, it just, I think you're, uh, how it's how it sticks with me now is just to just constantly check myself and my what it when I'm doing something you know it's what it's it's one thing to you know do it for others but also if you're doing it for others you gotta know you have to also do it for yourself Mm -hmm. you have to know why you're doing certain things and what what your what your intentions are right everything you do Otherwise, you know, you, you can just be kind of just like a trash bag in the wind or a trash bag. A trash bag. bag in, or that a, too, a plastic bag in the wind. A plastic bag you know, in the wind via Katy Perry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. I think that is interesting. I mean, Lang as a character is sort of a, a plastic bag <laughs> in the mm-hmm. sense that like, um, at least in 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 our play, um, there's a story being told to him. You know, he's being told like, "This is what's going on. This is what this is what you need to do." Um, and on the other side of it, there's a story that he's telling himself too. Um, and I think so often we do that, where we're told a story or we're we're kind of put into a myth. Um, and on the other side of it, we have a myth of our own that we're trying to build and they don't always they don't always align there's usually always like a tension between kind of the outer reality and our inner reality and that's that's kind of where theater comes from is that that friction and yeah i i agree with you i feel like lang as a figure in in matt's uh, iteration of of lang is a kind of cautionary figure um, he's sort of an everyman. I mean, we say it throughout the play, like blank slate. I don't know, we can get into his shoes. And even if he makes actions that don't really make sense to us, um, we see that like he's in a pressure cooker. Um, I think that gives us the ability to kind of step away sometimes and see like, 
what am I not doing or what am I doing? Um, and yeah, I just, I like how you put it, like, where, where is my contentment? Like, why am I content? Mm -hmm. um, 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 um. So you're, you're mostly a stage actor. Mm -hmm. I know you've done some, some TV and film, but what is it like, like, what is, what does radio feel like for you? Like, how do you feel about that, about being like a, a radio play? Like, what does that mean to you? I really enjoy it. I enjoyed it a lot because you, you know, it's, it's such a, it's such a practice of imagination because you don't have anything, you don't have props, you don't have stage, you don't have anything, you're not the person in front of you. You have yeah. to fully believe that you are there in those circumstances, dealing with the situation and being in that elevator and being in that high rise and mm -hmm. being by the beach with Catherine. It's just, it's, it's allowed kind of almost like a freedom of mm -hmm. to be able to explore more and not have things glued because it's, it's what we just have is right. words in front of us. Things glued. And, yeah. Um, yeah. And so it's just like building that world was really mm -hmm. fun. And it was also like as an actor um, and a personal challenge, because I find that I'm, one of the insecurities I do have is my voice. So just having only to be a storyteller through my voice and not, right. you know, and not fall on and hiding behind gestures or, you know, movements or whatever, mm -hmm. or appearance, it's, it's just that. And I, find, I found it very, very fun and allowed me to grow more as an artist, I believe, so. Right, yeah. 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 The voice. I, I feel insecure about my voice too. Um, and so I think as an actor, that's way different too. That was one of my concerns going into the radio play was because as a director, I, I very much have an appreciation for like the use of a body in space and like, mm -hmm. then like, I don't know, like the body is the actor's tool. And so in this, I mean, I tried to engage with your bodies a little bit, but given this process was so remote, we were all kind of separate. Um, it was definitely a challenge for me as well to kind of picture like, okay, how can these, how can I get these people to like really like ground themselves into the story, into the space? Um, and I think we got there sort of, um, but yeah, definitely challenging. But I love also what you said about the imagination. Um, that's kind of, what I'm trying to engage with these radio plays with this little this little theater project is like it's a kind of uh it's an imagination that both the actor and the audience have to enter into like listening to yeah. a radio play obviously the on the other side of this the audience has you know the sound design they have the music they have that they have the whole thing in front of them they can hear but they can't see it you know they can't it, they aren't looking at the space. They aren't looking at the characters. They're just sort of hearing it. And it's kind of being built in their mind or being sculpted in mm -hmm. their mind in the moment. Um, and so, I, yeah, I love that's what I love about radio plays. And that's what I'm trying to explore with this. Um, and yeah, I'm just, I'm real thankful that I had you um, on my side to, to kind of go through it um, and experience it. So, yeah. Yeah, it was like my first time doing 
something like this and it was just mm-hmm. you, you, it was so fun just being in the room but not in the room you know <laughs> right just, right being yeah. it like making the room ourselves like mm-hmm. I mean that's that's why I'm calling this like empty room the empty salon not to be like oh we're all sitting in one empty room but kind of like the idea of like like a like a spectral room like a room that's kind of spread all across wherever we all are we're kind of we're all entering it together and trying yeah. to you know sculpt something with just our voices and just mm-hmm. you know what we can make where we can find what we can make yeah anything's yeah. possible because it's anything's possible <laughs> yeah it's well empty, no it's <laughs> it's true it's empty but we we can fill it and we're filling it up yeah. right now yeah yeah well. these quiet hours In these quiet hours of the night, memories come in visions like slow strobes of light. I observed the moments that taught me to hide. That made me prisoner to this mind inside. I no longer seek to be, for who I am isn't fixed. I no longer seek to find the cutter that I fit in because I'm fucking large, like a vast field of grass, always vulnerable to life's impressions, but planted with fructuous hope. In these quiet hours of the night, I bathe in the brightest light. Great. Great. Okay, that's going. So yeah. So hi Molly. Hi, Jerry. How are you? I'm great. Um, I'm so happy to see you again after such a long time. No, oh my gosh. Um, it's been like I just because I was just talking to Ramon. I feel like I just had it's been like what like five months? Have I seen you at all since? I don't know. I mean we've we've talked. We've talked, but I've never like we never I interacted. Like, you. I know, I know. So wait, you're in Anaheim with me, right? I'm in Fullerton. Oh, you're in Fullerton. Okay. I guess I'm literally also in Fullerton. But I always like go over and then I like miss you by like. I know we're ships couple- in the night. Yeah. yeah. Oh my god, I miss you. I Your miss bedroom you. is so cute. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's very fun. Yeah. Very oh, Molly. I see all the posters. Very, very Molly. Yeah. Is that mm-hmm. is that Blondie? No. It's- it's Miley. It's Miley. It's Miley. Oh my it's gosh. It's Montana Miley. It's, 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 oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. Okay. Well, we're here. We're in the empty room or the empty salon. I love it. Um, yeah. That was my first question is like, where are you? And you just answered it. You're in your, your lovely Hannah Montana bedroom. <laughs> yeah, I am. Yeah, I live in a in a house in Fullerton. It's really nice. And I live with Kai, actually. Oh, okay. Um, so I'll, very fun. I'll hunt him down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm talking with him on Sunday very soon. So, so, yeah. So where do you call home? Like, where is your family? 
I'm very interested um, in like where yeah. people are based versus like where they where their heart is or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I I was born and I grew up in Whittier, California, mm-hmm. so it's like 40 minutes from here, maybe 30 mm-hmm. ish, like. 30. And then like I went to high school like in Fullerton. I like have always like done mostly my education in Fullerton and like because I went to Catholic school. So like oh. they my parent my yeah, I went to an all-girls Catholic I school. I did not know that. That's really cool. I went to an all-girls Catholic high school. So like um my parents like would drive me like 40 minutes just so I could like get like good education. And I was like, that's oh cool. God. And look at you now. Look at me now. All F's. All F's. Um, that's fun Whittier California that explains why you're so witty oh Oh. yeah I tell the jokes Jared I know you (laughs) we'll we'll talk about that I do want to talk to you about comedy um, because I think it's very funny that I keep using you I told this to to Ramon but you are like you and him are like one of my muses. Oh my gosh, like, what? I use you. Well, I mean, like I've, I've worked with you quite a bit and I just find mm-hmm. it, it's like a funny ongoing gag to me that like you're mm-hmm. um, mostly a comedic artist and I oh. have not used you in a comedy. And I love not, it. Not officially as a comedy. You kind of bring comedy um, to me. I'm glad you don't. You're, you're, you're glad that I'm not funny? No, I'm glad. I'm glad that you don't use me like for comedic stuff. Oh yeah, I feel like it's like it's you have a range, so that's. Thank you. Um, so yeah, so how how do we know each other? I mean, obviously we we met through school. We met through the same program. I feel like I mean I didn't meet like I was in like Leslie's directing scenes at school, but then Mm -hmm. I feel like I didn't meet you until like. I auditioned for your show. Mm-hmm. Antigonic. Antigonic. Yeah, you were my Antigone, mm-hmm. um, which was so much fun. That's fun. Uh, Kai was in that as well, but I'll save that for when I talk to him yeah. for what he did. So yeah, we've we've worked on Antigone or Ann Carson's translation of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was very fun to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like doing, I feel like that show was kind of like a sign of like, things to come in our like artistic collaboration I still think about (laughs) when when we were recording the the b-roll for um that crowd scene on the 39th floor in high rise and Mm -hmm. I was like okay you guys are going to basically be playing two different versions of yourself and you like piped in with this little comment that was so funny you're like oh how Brechtian I'm like it is (laughs) yeah it is it is um so yeah Antigone um what else have we? Have we I think that's it. Together? I mean, like I did your play wrote. Oh, that's right. Yeah, at Long Beach Min. Playhouse. Yeah, at Long Beach. Long at Beach. Beach. At the longest of beaches you can I imagine. Think that's it. I think so. Yeah. I think than, after you worked with me, you're just like, no. Yeah, you know, I saw, <laughs> I saw behind the curtain. Yeah. The the Molly curtain. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, so we have that. We have Antigone. We have my own play now, High Rise, Matthew's play. So what else do you do? I like, by t- I, we touched on comedy, um, mm-hmm. but I, I really want to talk about some of your, some of your art. So like, what do you do, girl? Who are girl, you? Girl, what do you, girl, what do you do? As an artist. Um, well, 
yeah, I'm an actor, but I feel like, I don't know. I feel like I've always been kind of the person that like kind of does everything. Like Mm -hmm. I love acting and I love like graphic design. I love like writing. I don't know. I've just like kind of been like a jack of all trades kind of gal. Yeah. A Joe of all trades. Yeah. A Joe. (laughs) A Jennifer of all trades. Jennifer, (laughs) but I feel like that, like my like heart has always like been like with comedy forever. Mm -hmm. Um, and now I'm in school and it's my senior year, so like I'm I'm doing acting stuff, but like you know, school doesn't always like offer me like what I want to do, so Mm -hmm. I tend to like make my own things. So yeah, I'm like I started an improv team at school, the Fullertons, and we're doing a show every month. So I'm like coaching the team and how to do improv and then I'm also like in it you're in it you're the MC I'm you're the, the coach MC. I'm the coach yeah it's like my favorite thing our last show like was in the arena like every seat was filled I'm not kidding oh my it was, god it congrats was, um I was like wow um yeah and then like this summer I got really into like well okay so I like am a comedy nerd for like this certain comedian and her name is Natalie Palomitas and like she's my favorite like I'm obsessed with her Um, she's my muse so okay (laughs) so she like posted on social media like oh like I'm doing this show in LA and I'm like I'm going and it was like in this park and it was like COVID so I was like okay this is awesome they're like making art during COVID so I go and watch and I go to this show like three times like three different times I do it every week And I brought like someone with me and I was like, should I talk to them? Should I talk to them? Is that weird? Like, should I like, like, I'm a big fan. I don't know. So then I go up to her and, and like the rest of the crew and I'm like, hi, um, can I be your intern? (laughs) And then they were like, sure. Like, what can you do? And I'm like, uh, I got a camera. And, (laughs) and then I just started like picking up like, uh, comedy photography like of them Mm. um and then slowly they like taught me the skills of their show so I've learned like a lot about clowning and just Mm -hmm. like all the other stuff that they do is just so cool so they kind of like put me under their wing and I'm like I'm still their little intern like literally next week I'm like helping them do a film but yeah I just like picked up clowning and I didn't know like what it was I was like that's weird like red nose like that's really but it's like not like that at all it's just like It's like can, in the like, it's in the vein of like like old older theater like Commedia dell'arte. Mm-hmm. I was gonna ask you that if you've done clowning before because it's clowning is really fascinating to me, but mm-hmm. it's it's all new to you. That's so cool. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm still a baby. Like, I'm doing a show on Saturday. Like, that's like probably one of my first clowning shows, and I like I haven't gone to any of the rehearsals, and they're like, "It's fine. Oh. You'll just jump in. It'll be fine." I'm like, "Really." Right. <laughs> is it is it that different from like improv do you think no it's not that different at all okay okay because the clowning that I really like is silent oh so it's like and like all we have is like costume pieces we don't have like red nose and like sometimes we would have masks right. but it's all about like it's I mean it's kind of like when I did not take a nick with you it's like all about like movement and like right. body and like how can you like tell a gag like without saying anything? And it's like, mm-hmm. that's fun. That's so cool. And now like, I'm going to go to clown school after I graduate. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm getting my degree in clown. I'm getting my degree. Away. I'm just going to study it for six weeks in France. Um, oh, I- oh, just going to France. Oh, yeah, oh my gosh. Cool. Wait, that is so cool. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to like 
interrogate you about that when you return. No, I wanted to, I think I might like make like a vlog thing, even though it's not my thing. I'm just like, right. I don't know. Like, what am I going to travel like, like this again? So. When are you going to study clowning in Paris? I know that's so main character. <laughs> main character. Oh my God. I don't know. I just got really lucky. I just met all these people that like kind of give me like a little in. And like mm-hmm. now when I move to LA, I can like do all kinds of comedy stuff. Right. Not mm-hmm. just lucky, Molly, okay? You went out and you found them. You said, hey, let me be your little clown intern. Yeah. That's so great. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. I'm so happy. I'm so excited for you. Thank you. Um, so yeah, tell me about like your artistic process. Mm-hmm. I want, especially clowning because I've never, I've mm-hmm. never been a clown before as much as I feel like a, a court gesture. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what is that process like when it comes to like, the physical movement of it and how does it like because like as an actor like you're being trained in like the Stanislavski method message yeah. method the Me- Stanislavski oh my god I can't say Stanislavski. it right now yeah. but that guy that very like that guy thing, that mm-hmm. dude yeah um how like what is it like how do you reckon those two things of like Russian acting and like clowning in a zoo um like I don't it's it's funny because when I'm in class, I find it so easy for me. A lot of people just talk about how like sometimes in acting classes, you know, like it's really hard and it's like you get yelled at. But like for me, since I have such like a naivete like brain because of mm-hmm. clowning, I just go in there and I like forget everything. Oh my. And then I just, I'm like, okay, I'm playing. Like, I'm just like, mm-hmm. I am the character and I'm just like playing. So I think that's like my process. Like right now we're doing the wolves. Um, and my oh. care and my character is like the stoner who's like really wacky and crazy. And I'm just like, okay, I'm going to like walk in this door. I'm not saying I'm a method actor at all. I'm just saying right. like, as soon as lights go up, like, duh, I'm the character. Right. You're going to go and- stoned to rehearsal. <laughs> yeah, I go stoned to rehearsal. Yeah. um I don't know I just I love playing but the number one thing for me in my process is like I'm not I'm never trying to be funny like I don't Mm -hmm. want to ever try to be funny because to me like especially in improv Mm -hmm. whenever I teach them like the number one thing I tell them I'm I'm like I don't care if you're funny I want you to tell a good story Mm -hmm. because I feel like the funny like comes from it so I guess like my process is always just like, how can I tell a good story with like who I am and like my body and like everything that I have? Like, as long as I come prepared, I just like have an open mind and I can play because like, I don't know, when I was a freshman and a sophomore, I just like would cry a lot. And I would be like, I have to get it right. Like, oh my gosh, I need to get it right. But now I'm like, whatever. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. That pressure is gone now. Yeah. I'm like, what if my interpretation is like different? And like, if you, if the director doesn't like it, okay, cool. Let's go with their idea. Right. Right. That's great. I just try to have fun because like art, you know, is made for like fun. So it is. Yeah, it is fun. I think it should be, even if like, for instance, our play, if you're making, you know, a kind of very, um, thrilling and tense kind of speculative statement about society mm-hmm. um we can still have fun yeah I think I think we did have fun I too. think it is fun I think that this like was a great experience for me to have fun in a different way because 
I had to like imagine everything. So mm-hmm. then it like made my mind go like, oh, that's what the, my whale looks like in this it's scene. The whale. Oh my gosh. It's the whale. So yeah. yeah. I'm glad you brought up imagination because that's exactly what Ramon and I were talking about of, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, going from the stage, going from that place of like where you can play in a space with your body and other people's bodies to tell the story. When you move to the radio, all you really have is, you know, other people's voices and your yeah. own imagination. It's very much like a theater of the mind, theater of yeah. the ear, I guess. But for the actor, you even have less because you don't have all the like sound design. You just have uh, your like the script and your your own instincts. And you uh, don't even like feel the other people's energy because like when you're in the room, like I can feel the action right. that you sent me, but it's like, um, there's it's, a strain yeah. right here. It's been, it was, it was definitely a, a difficult, difficult for me as well as a director because being in the space is so important to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and this whole process with, with High Rise for this radio play, we did do it all remotely. So, you know, everyone was, you know, in their separate rooms recording, mm-hmm. um, on their laptops or whatever. Although there was that, there was actually that one little rehearsal where you and Kai were in the yeah. same space. Yeah. And I remember that we talked about how it kind of changed the, the dynamic. Yeah. It kind of made, you know, the listening um, and like the reacting to each other a little bit more palpable. Mm-hmm. And so I find that really interesting. I'd love in the future, like whatever other radio centric project I do, to actually be in the room with people and kind of bring back a little bit of like that sense of being in the same space and sharing the energy. Um, Yeah. yeah. So yeah, what was it like for you to kind of build these characters, especially Catherine, because about one thing about this play that really drew me to it was, was Catherine, Matthew's creation of Catherine, who's, who is an invention, you know, she's not in, the novel in the same degree as as she is here um and so yeah i think she her presence kind of reveals a lot about what matthew was trying to do with this story yeah tell me what do you what do you think what was it like creating this kind of like this figment of a woman who was aware that she was a figment yeah i mean i'm glad she was creative because i think that you know we all seek love at least most of us like in our Mm -hmm. lives and I think that was like really good for Lang to have Mm -hmm. someone um yeah like creating her and being her I feel like I tried to find like okay what like I tried to see from like Lang's perspective like how is she like perfect in his eyes and like what does she look like in his eyes but then like the minute he like closes his eyes if this makes sense and she like regains herself oh like who who is she like from not his perspective but like from her own like right like who is she when he's not looking at her yeah mm. Mm. beautiful yeah like you know I I me as Molly like I always tend to fall in love with like the idea of people but then I like figure out who they are and I'm like wow that's like not who I thought you were at all Right. So I think it was it was kind of like that, like how the shift in the scene at the beginning, it's just so fun. But then as soon as like the memory is like altered, like she is like really who she is. Wow. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. Yeah. So 
So yeah, you did, you did, I mean, everyone did a few characters in this piece mm-hmm. because, you know, there's the chorus and then everyone sort of steps out into a different character in the high rise. I played um, the elevator. You played the elevator. You mm-hmm. played the horse. I did. You were, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so it's, it was really cool um, from my end, at least to sort of watch you because you had this, I really loved the the voice that you had. You had this kind of like mid-Atlantic thing going on for a lot of the a lot of the play, this like chorus mm-hmm. character that you were in. Um, yeah, I wanted to ask you, have you ever done or considered like voice acting before? Totally. Yeah, I could totally. absolutely see it for you. When I was a little girl, like I was obsessed with it. It's I mean, it's what made me want to be an actor. Mm-hmm. And like I was fortunate enough to like meet um, a lot of animators who work for like um, Nickelodeon Cartoon Network and my really good friend, I met him on Hinge and then we like, and now we're like besties, but he he works for like, he works for like Nickelodeon Cartoon Network and he always tells me like, you need to like get into voice acting. And I'm like, okay, yes, hook me up. (laughs) Yeah, I could see that or I could hear that, I guess. Wow. I love, I, I feel like me as myself, I'm always like a, a cartoony kind of person. So I feel like it fits yeah. really well. That's, yeah. That's what I think is, it's so fun to work with you because huh? you're, I mean, not to say like you're a cartoon, you're not like a real person. I mm-hmm. just like, you, you have a great amount of energy mm-hmm. and as an actor, I feel like you have a good amount of elasticity too. Um, I mean, I know you're just, you're still studying acting, mm-hmm. um, I was talking to Ramon. I'm going to keep bringing Ramon up. Yeah, great. He was telling me about his pottery that he's doing oh. and this idea of like sculpting out of the clay, like this feeling of using your hands. And mm-hmm. I sort of brought up this idea of like actors kind of have to do that to themselves. They kind of have to sculpt themselves into different characters that they're creating or kind of like be open to being sculpted. Yeah. Um, and I feel like with voice acting, there's a whole other layer of it because, you know, you're becoming like an animated character, like your own own figure Mm -hmm. isn't isn't there. It doesn't need to be there. So there's like so much freedom. Yeah. That's so fun. Yeah. And And sometimes like they give you a picture of like what the character, I've done like, I've done one like uh, audition for like a pilot and it was like, they gave me this character and it was like, weird looking okay. and they gave me like a little description and it was like robin williams mixed with like someone else and i was like how okay. am i gonna do that but wow. yeah it was, it was fun oh my gosh can you give me a sample oh my god no okay we don't have to <laughs> um i don't even remember <laughs> i'm like edging the audience they're like right. come on give us your cartoon voice i can do kermit you know oh okay anyone can do kermit but i went oh wait no i've totally heard your kermit before and it's not everyone can do kermit yeah i'm sorry i take it back not everyone not everyone can be kermit you do it no you do it let me hear it (laughs) okay maybe not everyone okay yeah okay okay. (laughs) um it's not easy i don't know what he's like it's not easy being green not a good kermit thank you yeah i've heard your kermit it's it's quite a good kermit thank you Mm mm-hmm beautiful Kermit. Like I always tend to fall in love with like the idea of people, the idea of people, the idea Yeah, okay, pivoting back to High Rise a little bit, kind of talking about um Catherine is like 
the centerfold of Lang's, you know, inner inner journey. I mean, this play, this this play kind of really boils down the the different perspectives of of the novel down to just Lang and his experience, his experience of the other residents, his experience of like his own regrets and mm -hmm. centering like the center of all that, the kind of swirling vortex of like his his contentment and his also discontentment is there in that scene with Catherine. So I want to ask you, like, now that we've kind of stepped away from it, now that you've, you know, had time to kind of, you know, be immersed in these characters and now stepped away from it, now you've been doing other things, you've been a clown, you've been doing mm -hmm. cool little Halloween shows. Um, what do you think um, the heart of this play is, this mm -hmm. high rise? Yeah, I was thinking about this a lot. <laughs> um, I think it's community. Mm. Uh, I think it's, you know, just the building itself, like how many different, like diversity and community and like, I don't know. It's it's interesting how everyone put the pressure on Lang to fix this problem. Mm -hmm. And I think that we do that a lot in society. We like complain about so many things and then right. we just like are like but can you do it right i, I don't want to do, <laughs> do it i don't want to yeah i think community is, is such an interesting word um especially for the high rise because mm -hmm. this is something that that ballard explores in the novel is that you know high rise a high rise apartment building as a community you'd think like it would be easy to like get in touch with your neighbors and like, you know, communicate with them and like, you know, form some kind of, you know, relationship with the people that you're sharing a space with, but it's actually difficult. Um, mm -hmm. It's almost impossible, especially in this high rise where like there are all these amenities in the building. Um, and then of course there's like something darker kind of going on in the building, but yeah, this idea of like community and almost like what happens when there is a lack of community, how mm -hmm. these different grievances spiral into like destruction. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. That's why I was like, this is such a good show for like the times right now, mm -hmm. because that's literally what happened like as soon as the pandemic started and like the BLM movement and everything, like everybody mm -hmm. like, disbanded and like went against each other but then also like there was like moments of people coming together right so I think what we want to look for and really cling to are those moments of people coming together of mm -hmm. you know things I mean that's the warning of the high rise is mm -hmm. you know all of the residents they all have these same complaints they're all dealing with these same inconveniences they're all suffering and there's some some kind of organization some kind of communal aspect but what goes wrong with it is that it becomes too much about one person's actions one man's actions mm -hmm. and it, it it also I mean the other problem is that it's so violent um you know mm -hmm. really that's not the solution is to like kind of break off into these smaller and smaller little tribes almost mm -hmm. um that's not the way to fix the fix the doom circle that we're in um at least in the play that's I think it's 
probably true about real life as well, but the play especially shows it in such a stark kind of allegory of like, you're gonna push someone out of the building and what is that going to solve mm-hmm. other than, you know, you know, smashing a car, yeah. um, you know, it's a moment of release, sure, to kind of take out our grievances and to kind of be with people and say, this is a problem. This is something that is hurting me. Um, but without like a cohesive community, we aren't able to, you know, figure out a way to fix that, how to fix the structure, how to fix the high rise that we're in, you know, mm-hmm. all the water is failing, the elevators aren't working, people mm-hmm. are throwing trash into the hallway. Yeah. Um, and instead of the residents figuring out a way to make the structure work or to just leave the structure without jumping out of the building, of course, rather than doing that, we, they kind of push everything into like this like droplet of, yeah. of like, uh, I don't know, this like droplet of energy that is just given to Lang and Lang has to deal with it in his, in his mind. Um, I kind of lost my train of thought just there, but you have <laughs> Catherine there. Catherine mm. is the one that's pushing him. Um, I mean, and Catherine is in a way just a part of himself. Yeah, definitely. Except for when he isn't looking. And then the, mm-hmm. the truth of her, 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 her actual memories are, you know, giving him a different story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's deep. I guess. <laughs> I don't know if I made sense there, but. Yeah, yeah, you did. Yeah, she's not a part of everything that's going on in the high rise. To Lang, she is. Because to Lang, she's kind of the reason he's here. The reason mm-hmm. he's, you know, tried to. Um, you know, make this new identity for himself. Mm-hmm. The identity that the residents kind of lift up as like the one way, like the one person who can change things mm-hmm. when really we need everyone to change. Yeah. Um, so yeah, my last question that I have for you, Molly, mm-hmm. um, I want to know, you know, so we've kind of done high rise twice now in a way, right? We had our first initial go at it when it was a school project for me. Um, and then, you know, that collapsed into a heap. And then we kind of booted it up again. And I'm like, hey, let's, let's do this. You know, I approached you all. Um, and so we've gone through it a second time and we sort of felt the, the meaning of the play and like the value of it has kind of changed for us. But mm-hmm. I want to know after this process, what... What have you kept either from the medium itself, you know, working in radio, working in that imagination space, that, that imagination space. I feel like that's like a, a segment on like a children's, a children's yeah. imagination. imagination space. Um, but yeah. What have you kept? I'll stop rambling. Yeah. I, I, I think I definitely have like kept my um, passion and like, I feel like this kind of like rebooted my passion for like Mm -hmm. voice acting and just like using my voice in different ways um but also I don't know I I just I still can't believe that you put me as Catherine (laughs) like I don't know I it was just it was so like it was such an honor that you picked me into this piece like I don't know you know because everybody thinks of me as like such a funny person and that's great 
you know, but I just really enjoyed that I got to explore this character mm-hmm. because she's like, sure, she has a little quirk to her, but she's like, she has a lot of heart and she's mm-hmm. been through a lot. And it was just, it's nice to play like someone human, yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, so I think that this is doing this, like, kind of reminds me, like, hey, Molly, like, you can do more than just be the funny girl. Oh, um, yeah. Well, it's an honor to, to have shown you that continually. <laughs> Thank you. Um, And also just like um, working on a new work is just also just something I love doing Mm -hmm. and working with people I care about. So I just I just always strive to make and find new theater. And I think this was just such a great experience. And it inspired me to like want to be creative like this and find I never thought like a radio play would have all these layers and stuff and (laughs) that turned out to be amazing so wow thank you Mm -hmm. wow yeah I'm really passionate about about making new work um you know finding things that are that are different than what I've been what I've been seeing what I've been doing Mm -hmm. um yeah it's it was an honor to to make (laughs) new with you Molly um and I'm excited to to see what else you do, what else, yes. what other clownery, what other stories you do. I'm excited to see um, maybe if you ask me to work with you again. Oh, well, actually, according to my uh, my contract, I actually, uh, <laughs> no, no, I'm <laughs> actually um, not allowed to work with you anymore. No, I just said you're one of my muses. So, of course, I'm going to have to work with you again or else I'm a liar. You are a liar. I am a liar. <laughs> <laughs> well. Okay, well, thank you for talking with me, Molly. Thank, thank you, you for, for having me. Yeah, thank you for being one of my first victims. One of yeah, my the first salon guests. was so nice. There were snacks. There are snacks. There's a beautiful, dilapidated ballroom. Oh. Um, there is some water dripping in the corner mm. <laughs> into a bucket. Oh. I have no idea. Um, yeah, it's been lovely. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Is this a weird argument? I'm alone on my insides. I died long ago. Who suffers more? I wonder who suffers more. Your soul is blowing apart! With its 40 floors and 1,000 apartments, supermarket and swimming pools, bank and junior school, all in effect abandoned in the sky. The high-rise offered more than enough opportunities for violence and confrontation. I'm so glad we're talking about the apocalypse and the end of things because I feel like high-rise so so deftly maneuvers around Mm -hmm. the crumbling of civilization and the rebuilding of potentially something better. Right. Some potentially something better um it depends on who you big, ask in the yeah, high rise big big lots of lots of work that word potentially oh yeah doing. it carries um, a lot of weight it is it is doing some heavy lifting yeah i i would say ballard is a very apocalyptic writer um i think pretty much all of his work explores that in some facet if not a literal apocalypse a literal end of time at least um there is like the feeling of like 
apocalypse creeping in. Yeah, certainly um, with his work in the 60s, with yeah, like, where, I, which High Rise world. was born out of. Yeah, the Drowned, drowned world, world, Crash. crash uh, yeah. What is it? It's, uh, I think it's the island, the one where the dude gets crashed on like a, on an interstate kind of set of byways and finds he can't get off. Oh my God. That's, yeah. Yeah, that sucks. <laughs> so yeah, he is quite a prolific science fiction author, I would mm-hmm. say. Um, so yeah, I, I'm curious, how did you, how did you come to High Rise? Like what led you to the, the content and Ballard? Uh, I was always more of a, of a movie buff. Um, so I had a buddy across the street in my childhood. Um, well, not necessarily childhood. This was like high school or something like that. Late high school. And I remember we were Late, hanging out. Early adolescence. Yeah, which is yeah. still you, know, you can still call it childhood, sure, um, a kid, yeah, in in a, in a way. Um, but I remember he he pulled up his phone. He was like, and I remember him telling me, "I have this trailer to show you because this looks amazing." And it was mm-hmm. it was the first kind of teaser trailer that they put out for Ben Weed Ben Wheatley's adaptation of High Rise, um, which is a polarizing film, but I I love it. I think it's fantastic. I um, still have not watched it. It's wild. Um, I think. I think. I think a lot of the movie seeps into a lot of my my interpretation of the play, just by nature of that. Something that I just have such a fondness for, mm-hmm. and I and I think it's a. It's it's a much. It winds up being a much different movie than the book, but in the same way that this play winds up being a much different um, interpretation of the of the play of the book itself, right? Um, but he introduced me, it was this teaser trailer that essentially the way that it was presenting itself was like a, like an, an advertisement for a new set of high-rise apartments. So it wasn't necessarily mm. advertising the movie, it was advertising the high-rise itself. Oh, okay. Which was really interesting stuff and in how, you know, it's got all of the, all the modern accommodations. It's fully equipped with a marketplace and a bank and a pool and a school. And there's no reason that you would have to leave. And I think as it went further through the teaser, you start getting bits and pieces of oh wait a minute perhaps this isn't going as well as oh, i think it is yeah and then it was really and then it was when the i think like the second trailer came out and they used they used um life on a highway i think it's a song by tangerine dream oh, and okay. it was the entire aesthetic of it and the the general vibe and the the nature of again this this was all just just um it wasn't even, I wasn't even getting a story from it. It was just the, the energy and the atmosphere that it exuded mm-hmm. just really caught my eye in a way that at the time, um, a lot of movies weren't really doing. Right. Um, uh, the movie came out, I saw it come out and then I didn't watch it for many, many years. <laughs> um, cause I'm very bad that way, right. but I, I wound up picking up the book first before I ever wound up watching the movie. Um, I, I loved it. I thought it was, it was, again, it's always interesting reading a book and seeing a movie and how radically different they can be. Mm-hmm. Whereas um, the, the film, Ben Wheatley's film, you get a, you get glimpses of Wilder and Royal and kind of their personal storylines, but on the whole, it revolves around Lang, mm-hmm. um, which I think, I think, Wheatley winds up in kind of the in kind of in 
direct opposition to your ideologies of there doesn't have to be just one protagonist. Right. Which I think is something which I think is something that I've I, I would have liked to explore more in the ballot in my adaptation, but ultimately um for for it being uh, such a shorter play i think condensing it really bringing it back all to lang mm-hmm. um was ultimately my goal so you know i wasn't able to to explore the the kind of three coinciding storylines that ballard winds up uh concocting between mm-hmm. lang royal and wilder yeah um, but they're still there they're still there oh absolutely absolutely they are they, and i'm, and I'm of... happy about that but like you know it's such mm-hmm. a radical change that uh spoiler alert um <laughs> that um that wilder wilder is the one who fa- uh, fatally injures royal rather than lang um mm-hmm. wilder is then uh knifed to death by by the con conclave of women on the right. 40th floor which i oh i love that shit so that much. moment when he that i believe it ends that like his final chapter it ends with like he like toddles across the roof yeah his new mothers he starts right he he strips down and he starts running towards his new friends and his mm-hmm. new mothers as everybody's drawing knives on him yeah and they're like <sighs> oh yeah oh, yeah it's incredible it's stuff. horrifying <laughs> it's 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 spooky stuff it's um spooky. But I, but I think it gets into a little bit of um, why I changed the play, but I think that mm-hmm. gets into, I think, one of our later questions, um, especially like how has the meaning of the play changed to us over time, which I guess I can get into a little since we're on the subject. But I think it's the matter of that the original play, the, the original book really, um, really uh, dives into not only the kind of animalistic nature and the primal, the primal nature of people mm-hmm. and quote unquote man, um, to use the almost Tolkien-esque term. Right. Um, but I think what I wanted to explore in this is where where Ballard bring where Ballard um, very staunchly comes down on a, on a classist story of lower middle and upper floors that is still present. Mm-hmm. But I think what ultimately I wanted to go for was Lang's understanding that there is no pride in being middle-class. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that no matter, no matter what, because I, they, they explored a little bit in the play and in the book, good God. Um, books and plays just blend together for me these days. Yeah. Um, in in the book itself, Lang Lang comments that if there's a person two or three floors down from him, he feels he feels like he looks down on them. Right. And I think I really wanted to explore that, especially with the the 39th floor scene mm. where he becomes the object of everybody's mockery that so many people of the lower floors unwittingly became to him. Right. Yeah. Without like, not even consciously. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, 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 I love that. I love that Ballard never, never gives us like a definitive or even good reason why all of a sudden everybody starts looking up and down at one another. Yeah. It's, it's just it's minor something. inconveniences and it's just yeah. the very nature of people and it's the very nature of the high rise. Yeah, it's, um, it's really, it's a really haunting story because I mean, like you were telling me the other day that um, in the novel, you're kind of hit over the, hit over the head with a two by four 
of, you know, the social structure of the high rise, which, um, you know, at first it, it's as it starts to develop it, we, we, the high rise itself kind of splits into three parts, the, the upper floors, then the, the large middle section, and then the lower 10 floors. Um, but then as the play goes on, or sorry, as the, as the novel goes on, um, those delineations break down even further and we go yeah. from a class structure to a kind of tribal tribal like just roving clans and then it and then t- towards the end of the novel it breaks down even further and it's just like just people like you know stocking up what they can kind of roving around in like this state of like primeval madness it's, it ultimately it's comes full circle yeah it does it does come full circle because we begin the play with with this place of critical mass all mm-hmm. of the all of the residents of the high rise comment on it there's kind of a celebratory nature mm-hmm. of like you know oh every single apartment is filled you know this this building is now complete it's now full of life we are at critical mass everyone's you know in their own apartments and there's a sense of uh um there is a strange sense of togetherness at the beginning of the book because there are all these parties going on, um, but there things start to go awry once, you know, it's almost even before the actual breakdown of the amenities that things start to kind of twist mm-hmm. and people start to start to feel these tiny resentments for people above or below them. Um, I can't remember what the quarrel was exactly, but um, there's the moment that Lang has at the party where he's cornered by the steels. Yes, the steels. Yeah, that's that's his first experience of animosity in the high rise. It's actually over. It's over the the, the garbage chute that they share yeah. between their apartments. Um, what they always... start probing him about what it is that he has in his garbage. Yeah, they're like, "What's up with your trash?" And he's like cornered in the part in this party, and mm-hmm. he's it sort of comes out of nowhere, this like weird aggression. And then it melts off because eventually he and Steele become like like marauders together. Mm-hmm. Um, this is unrelated completely, but there's a description that Ballard has of Steele that I found so interesting that um, his like middle part. Yeah, so it's a little orifice of a mouth. Yeah, it's an, an orifice. Like his his middle part is an orifice, which is so bizarre to me i don't know ballard's descriptions are very like alien he as a as a as an author has this ability to kind of render the familiar in this very kind of like like shamanistic sense almost um a lot of his a lot of his work has to do with these like primordial landscapes that kind of emerge or are are kind of like recreated by, you know, modern man and, you know, technology and, you know, whatever psychosocial um, like strand we're all on in, in, in modern times. Mm -hmm. Um, It's quite a bizarre look. And yeah, like, like you were saying um, the breakdown of the high rise, it does, it does go full circle where, you know, we, we broke down into classes and then we broke down into tribes on floors and then it breaks down even further. It's just like wandering tribes of people. And then in the end, it's everyone's terrified of what's going on. There are just like 
bursts of violence across the building at all moments. So mm-hmm. people just kind of literally barricade themselves into these like empty apartments while there's just like trash rotting all around them and there's no water coming down the pipes. Um, but the we, fact that everybody prefers it that way is yeah. truly the most wild part. And the, I think the part I love so much about this play Mm-hmm. is um is i i saw a review for the for the letterbox for on letterbox for the movie that someone that someone was saying come on just leave mm-hmm. it's like mm-hmm. that defeats the purpose did right. you not did you not watch the movie did you not read the book the fact <laughs> that and yeah we we had and we talk about it we have that big moment in the play of the mm-hmm. um you could just leave yeah you, right. you could your car's right there Mm-hmm. you could just step you could step into an elevator take the stairwell go downstairs right. get your car, your car but and leave. nobody does it yeah. at, at the end of at the end of the book the only person that comes back is, uh, that leaves is the news reporter yeah and every single time he's at work on the news he never says anything and say everybody's anything. waiting for some sort of signal or break where he just acknowledges his tribe or anything right what's going on in the high rise one of one of my favorite parts in the play and it's something i'd love to um i'd love to explore Mm -hmm. in um sorry one of my favorite parts of the book of the book okay this is this is awful i'm (laughs) i'm going to entomb myself after this after this discussion um one of my favorite part one of my favorite chapters in the book that i would love to explore more in the play is the part where Lang is finally, after a long few days, finally leaving to go to work. He sees the people talking to the police, reassuring them that absolutely nothing is going wrong, despite all the garbage and mm-hmm. smashed champagne bottles outside the high rise, that everything's fine, no trouble here. Everybody's keeping up this illusion. And then Lang starts thinking about how brilliant and how hot and painful the sun is, so yeah. much so that they've reached a point where the outside world is so alien, so foreign, so seemingly dangerous to them Mm -hmm. that there was no point in leaving anymore. And I love, I love there's little moments that Ballard has in there where he insists that this is the last time that they could have ever possibly left and they didn't. And now they're, they're staying here. They're, they're stuck here. Yeah. There is, it's not even yeah. that they're stuck. I would they, say they it's, don't they want, like they yeah. like being there. It's they prefer being there. It's really weird because um, high rise is sort of. I mean, it's sort of an allegory for the entire, like the high rise itself. Mm-hmm. It sort of becomes the entire world. That's kind of what the what the book I think is trying to capture is that. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, yes, it is a critique about you know, the literal building of the high rise and the, the literal effect that this mm-hmm. sort of structure has on the people who are living within it. But um, it it's also an allegory of, it's like a diorama almost of all of life. Yeah. At least, at least the way Ballard is trying to depict it. Um, but it also becomes uh, like separate from the world. Like the, the, high, the, the residents of the high rise like one by one, like little piece by piece, they they sever themselves off from the world, you know, mm-hmm. that there are descriptions of all the phone lines being ripped off the walls. And then of course, like you just described all those, all the interactions where like the police or, you know, maintenance people come to the high rise and like, we think that they're gonna figure out what's going on. They're gonna see the trash. They're gonna see 
all the violence, but then mm-hmm. nothing ever happens. And and yeah, there are these moments where as we get like like further and further into the into the story, as things become worse and worse off, there are still people attempting to leave the high rise, but it's almost as if every time they leave and go out into their into their lives and go to their jobs, they're like in a dream. Yeah. There's, they just sleep at their desks. Yeah. I think, I like think, I think Ballard specifies. There's a description of Wilder where he mm. goes to his television studio job and he only has like half of his face shaved and then yeah. he just sleeps at his desk and then just And then comes leaves back. after an hour. And leaves after an hour and never leaves the high rise again. Um yeah, and it's just like the it's both like the entire world and also something entirely alien. Yeah. Um, and it's so it's so freaking intriguing. Just um, just the fact that every single person, I think Sans the news reporter, mm-hmm. whose name is whose name is um getting oh, away Paul from me. Crossland. Paul Crossland, mm-hmm. yes. The fact that everybody except for Paul Crossland, like all 1,000 apartments full right. of people have found purpose in the high rise mm-hmm. is astonishing. Yeah. And back to that, that letterboxed review of just leave. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are people who leave the high rise, but they leave because they die. Like, yeah. Yeah. The, exactly. only way, the only way to leave the high rise is to die. You know, yeah. either be thrown out of a window or be end up in the bone pit um the bone pit i i, I forgot about the pit i that was forgotten truly about the terrifying that i was forgot some... about it and Ugh. then yeah the pool on the 10th floor yes um <laughs> which we we see throughout the novel as just you know once things have to break down it's just like this pit of like yellowing water full of debris and uh i mean there's a moment early on when there's they find a dead dog floating in the pool, I think in the mm. first chapter. Um, and then it just, it, as things become worse and worse, uh, they're all of the, you know, all of the amenities are, are just in neglect and things are horrible. And then, you know, in the, in the last third of the book after, especially in the last chapter, right? Yes. Yeah. After, I mean, I, I assume it's gone on for a long longer than it has, but you're never, yeah. you're never introduced to the pit to the until pit the last until chapter. The end when, when, um, spoiler, sorry, it came out in the seventies. Um, after Anthony Royal has been shot by Wilder, who that moment also is really weird because like something in Wilder's brain switches where he just thinks he's playing a game. Yeah. Like until he dies at the end of like, he shoots, he shoots Royal and he's like, oh, he fell as if he's pretending to die. Yeah. He actually is dying. Um, I love how unceremonious that moment is. Weirdly yeah, enough. it's just, he shoots him through the chest and then it's just, he just keeps going up. And he topples over. He topples over. And it's just so bizarre. And in, in our last chapter, which is um, from Lang's point of view, um, he's kind of recounting how he found Royal all the way down on the 25th floor bleeding out still he'd somehow gotten himself down from the 40th floor um and he just sort of guides him all the way down to the 10th floor and just sort of watches him like go off to the swimming pool which is now full of corpses and bones and it's it's just horrifying like everyone who is 
who has died in the high rise, whether from you know old age or natural causes or being mauled by a starving puppy dog, mm-hmm. they're all here in this pool. And I believe the description says that like the last thing Lang sees is just Royal like trying to find a spot on the terminal slope of the yeah. pool. It's like I think, sliding down into the bones. I think grotesqueness aside, I think what's so oddly heart like it's heartbreaking for the whole reason that Royal dies, but I think it's heartbreaking for the reason that Royal wanted to die in one of the few spots that he specifically created for the high rise. Yes. That that in in our version of the play, Royal is is a is a major, if not the core mm-hmm. um, reason that the high rise went up, that he was such a, that he was a, a, an instrumental part, but in the book, in, in Ballard's, he's very minimal to it. The only things he really creates is going to be the 10th floor and like ups and uh, the penthouse sculpture garden for the children. Mm-hmm. Well, that, and he designed, he designed all of the elevator lobbies. Yes. So basically the parts of the building that he designed are the only parts that go to shit. <laughs> are the core parts that failed. <laughs> the, yeah. um, which is so goddamn sad. So um, sad but I, but yeah. I, think, I think wanting to, I think wanting to die in the 10th floor, almost like, almost like you give, almost like you give birth to a child and mm. then the child gets to bury you. Yes. That there is a... Oh, that's so freaky. Yeah. There, there is a familial relation between Royal and there's a familiar relationship between Royal and the high rise that I, that I, I still think that I, that I wanted to, that I was happy that I was able to explore. Cause I really like the little moment we have in the play where it's um this building. It's like a child. You don't yeah. go yelling at a child just because it's made its first mistakes that Royal wants so bad for this to work right because everybody else that has worked on the high rise has left mm-hmm. and nobody's come back and royal i don't think has even invited anybody yeah or at least not not past like the first few months of people mm-hmm. starting to move in because he yeah he is the so he's the first resident of the high rise um mm-hmm. because during the construction process he is injured in a car accident. And yeah. so he is then, he can no longer continue working on the development project, um, which is, you know, where the high rise is. There are four other towers that are being constructed um, throughout the entire length of the novel. Um, and at the end of the novel, um, we, we see that uh, the other high rise, the one directly across from the one where um, the events of the of the novel take place has finally reached its own critical mass. Um, finally, there is another high rise that is full of people in the development project, um, and that's where that's where the novel ends with like with Lang wishing to welcome the residents to their new mm-hmm. world because they've just experienced their first power outage on one of the floors of the new high rise. Um, and yeah, that idea of like. Uh, the high rise as a child, as a, as a conscience, like a, as a sentient creature almost Mm -hmm. um, is really interesting to me. Yeah. I don't remember where I was going with that line of thinking, but (laughs) we're here. There's so much to think about because the, the novel is just like, it's so like 
huge, even though it's so contained into one building, it just like, because the characters just like fall further and further back into themselves. And then like, they start to like lose any sense of who they even are. And they just become these like primordial beings almost. And then in the end, it, it's like they, they, there's this feeling that like things are returning to normal again. They're like, yeah. oh, everything's fine again. Even though if we look at the situation, it's it's not at all like laying... it's incredible. It's it's only it's only briefly mentioned here and there that like years pass in the high rise. Mm-hmm. Like there's so much time passes in this. And there are moments where Lang, Lang will hear like a bout of violence, a bout of senseless violence that mm-hmm. just happens because it can happen. Uh, and and recalls that, all right, I think we're getting to the last of the violence that we're going to ever have in right. this apartment. Well, yeah, that's what it's saying is like the, I mean, towards the end, it's sort of revealed that like that's kind of what the high rise has become is like a a means for these well-to-do professional people to mm-hmm. kind of um, engage with their own like perverse desires. Yeah. And yeah, I believe it is Lang who is kind of describing that like they're going to reach a point when all physical violence will stop because everyone yeah. will be able to just like engage with like their darkest, like most unexplainable urges. Yeah, um, like they'll finally be free. Yeah, they'll be free. <laughs> and it's like, I don't think so, you guys. Um, I mean, it, it, it even comes down to like the, 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 the like almost costume changes that they wind up doing. That mm-hmm. everybody's still leaving in nice jackets and yeah, looking as presentable as they can. They're still because they don't want to give away the game and mm-hmm. everything like that. But as soon as they get back, I mean, it's, it's found in Lang. Because um, he gets himself ready. He puts on a nice suit. And then immediately when after that brilliant sun goes back inside and changes back into like dirty tennis wear yeah, and like craves this scent of his own odor mm-hmm. royal um royal's angry when mrs wilder winds up cleaning his safari jacket that's been bloodied like he wears mm-hmm. that blood like a patch of honor right and his white dog yeah his and white like, alsatian there's just like this like this like halfway through the book i think there's a change where people no longer care about the filth and they mm-hmm. start to embrace it and they, they become it. they become territorial creatures almost yeah. like 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 royal or not royal but like wilder is just like like pissing everywhere yeah. um just marking his terrain and just like collecting women it's so yeah it goes everywhere um what was i saying i don't remember I feel like I'm the residence now. Like I'm just like forgetting my name, what I'm doing. We're kind of, yeah, I don't I mean, know. I, d- I just, I just love chatting about the book. Me too. Yeah. Um, so I guess, yeah. So let's continue talking about the book then. Um, I, so yeah, obviously there's, there's a lot going on. There's, there's a lot to do with Ballard's themes in this novel. He, mm-hmm. um, he's kind of exploring the limits of, the limits of convenience, the limits of technology, or if not the limits, the ways in which um, these conveniences can allow us to revert 
almost, even though that's yeah. not what we're, that's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to evolve, but he's, at least in this novel, he's sort of showing this kind of regression into the stone age. Um, I think, I think to Ballard, evolution is cyclical. Absolutely. That it is a bit of an Ouroboros. Yeah, I love that. It absolutely is. I mean, that's even, obviously we've said this a bunch of times already, but even in the book, like the breakdown of the high rise is cyclical as well. Mm -hmm. um, and even, even the way in which like each character, their, their own like stories almost loop, like for Wilder, for example, he, he has this, this um, continuing urge to, to master the high rise by making a full ascension to yeah. the 40th floor. And he attempts it a couple times. Um, and so it's like his, his continual decision to ascend the high rise and abandon his wife and children. Um, we kind of see it happen over and over again. And with Lang as well, this, this I mean, he, he almost gets out of the high rise a couple times, but then he kind of slumps into like, I don't know, this weird like need to find comfort. Um, and he kind of arranges himself with these people in this like weird familial relationship. I mean, it is his sister, his sister Alice lives in the high rise with him. Um, and in the end, they have this bizarre relationship where like himself and his sister and then this other woman, Eleanor, are in his apartment. Eleanor Powell. Eleanor Powell. Um, I love the names in this oh, also. Yeah. Like every character has a first and a last name and they're always referred to by their first and last name, almost as if the name, like their name isn't their name. And then late in the book, it's like, oh, I recognize this woman vaguely as Eleanor Powell mm -hmm. or Royal is talking to Mrs. Wilder, to Judith and is like, your husband, I think he was called Wilder once. And it's like, what do you mean? Like, yes, you called him Wilder the whole time. Um, and like the names, which are like the only really identifying like feature of any of these characters, other than like what they do outside of the high rise, it all goes away. Like once they no longer leave the high rise, they are something different. They're, yeah, yeah it's. I would also love to point out, um, I think because I think, I think the, the first and last names and because I think Ballard and in turn, every person in the high rise itself is still trying to keep up some sense of professionalism mm -hmm. that, that what I, what I really love about and what I wanted to kind of explore a little bit in the play with um, uh, Wilder lives on the second floor. Wilder is a documentary filmmaker. That is all you need to know about Richard right. Wilder. I, I, I love that there are points where it's like, there are two per two people, these are the two things that they do and you don't need to know anything about them. They're mm -hmm. a cost accountant and a calisthenics trainer or yeah, whatever. That's it. And they that's all you on need. this floor and that's all. And then and as you progress further into the book, um, because Mrs. Wilder's first name is actually Helen. And when, oh. when, um, when, when um, Richard Wilder comes across her, and she turns to look at him with those expressionless eyes. He specifies that um, he thought he knew her as his wife, Judith. Mm. And there's this, and suddenly names mean nothing anymore. Yeah, no wait. one means, no one really means anything to anybody anymore, mm -hmm. except for people like Lang. 
Right. Wait, that, okay, that makes, that's so true. Yeah. Her name isn't Judith. I had to back, I had to back it it up because I was like, that absolutely rules. I forgot about that. Well, no, because when I was reading it yesterday, like when I was finishing the book yesterday Mm -hmm. and I got to that point, I was like, oh, Judith. I was like, oh, for some reason, I almost thought that like I had never heard her name before. And like the entire time, Wilder only referred to her as his wife. Mm -hmm. But no, you're right. Her name is Helen. And in the end, it's Judith. Like, why is that? I think it's just, I think it's like names mean nothing anymore. Yeah. That, that, that even like, especially for Richard Wilde, I think, I think the, ultimately the high rise has a, has very different effects on very different people. For like sure. uh, Royal specifies that Wilder, Wilder would never be tamed by the high rise. Mm-hmm. Um, not in the way that like someone like Lang would be. Right. Um, how easily you settled, how easily you sank into right. the mundane to steal from my play. Right. Um, but the <laughs> fact that, but the fact that Wilder, um, it reminds me a lot of the Jim Gaffigan joke where uh, you can go up to a McDonald's and you can say a number and you'll get food and we'll get right. to a point where you can just grunt and you'll know exactly what you get. Hmm. That that Wilder doesn't need language anymore. He doesn't need, he, yeah. he reverts back fully to a child. Yeah. That words mean nothing. Um, subtext means nothing. I know writers who use subtext and they're all cowards. Um, <laughs> I, it's a it's a fantastic joke, but I think it speaks so much to Wilder. Yeah, that, that the high rise he can be he can be an animal. He can be whatever he wants to be. He doesn't need to say anything. He can just breathe and eat and fuck. Yeah, <laughs> and be and be and be and a child. He does all of that? Gets stabbed. Great pleasure. Yeah, um, yeah. The the high rise there is. So throughout the book, we are, we're understanding the high rise as less and less of a physical place and more of a, like a psychological landscape almost. Yeah. Um, Where there's almost a psychic high rise in everyone's minds and it does emit a different effect onto them. Um, And this kind of comes in when we we see the kind of breakdown of the three sections of the high rise Mm -hmm. where the lower floor residents sort of become less and less, they kind of become lethargic. Like they, they kind of become disconnected. They become we, complacent. We see, we see it with Helen. Like Helen is almost unable to see her husband. Mm-hmm. She's unable to really like recognize the events that are taking place. Um, and then in the middle section, um, which especially that's where Lang lives. Mm-hmm. Um, Lang is described as the truest resident of the high rise. Even, even as much as he wants to detach himself from, you know, the identities and the struggles of all of his neighbors, he is like the one who the high rise was built for, which yes. early on in the book, it, it straight up says that like the novel, the, the, the novel says that, that the high rise wasn't necessarily designed for a community of thousands of people. It was designed for the individual tenant isolated in his own apartment. Yeah. It's made for um, privacy. It's made for privacy. It's made for uh, like, it's made for isolation, mm-hmm. um, which is where I draw a lot of, you know, my own thematic reading of the novel and the play from. Um, and then the, the effect that's, uh, that's imparted on the upper floor residents is kind of one of like, um, it's interesting. Every, I mean, everyone degrades, everyone loses language and loses meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea of the names especially is 
so intriguing to me. There's a moment um, with when with Eleanor Powell when Lang rediscovers her um, after he goes searching for food for his sister Alice. Um, he finds Eleanor like with like she's like in her room like watching these TV screens. She's like um, she's like transcribing a horse race or something. And Lang turns the volume up on the monitor and just hears like the announcer like calling the names of all the horses and you know horses have like random names it's like hell yeah they do it's like three like, drop billy yeah like five bells or good like magic summer chair or something and so summer he's, chair he's just like hearing all of these like this like demented list of names and he like imagines it as like like all these random objects that are being called upon to repopulate the high rise a new like rush of like frantic identity um which i find I mean, we see that happen with with Helen turning into Judith, um, with um, and there are some characters who don't even have names; they're just indicated by what they do or like yeah. where they live. Like I think of the jeweler's wife; she's only ever described as the jeweler's wife. Um, the jeweler being the first death in the high rise. Um, it's kind of never explained at all what happened to him, but he falls from one of the he falls from the 40th floor window from his own penthouse to his death and mm-hmm. there's no follow-up like this is like the, the kind of first bizarre thing of the high-rise that like no one calls the police no yeah. one comes to investigate no one no one tries to figure out what happened i mean there are some there are some assumptions made during during the novel that um he either killed himself or his wife murdered him somehow but there's that that's just a mystery that's there the only uh, person that cares ultimately is wilder when he comes back from his uh from his trip right because that well not he doesn't even care out of like oh this poor man who died no not like from, a we, not like a we need to like not like a we need to get the police figured out more, it's just more like, so oh, just out of curiosity curiosity a place to start his documentary yeah yeah this death um it's that yeah, sensational so, tmz style of uh yeah of, um <laughs> News, oh, no. casting. yeah his his documentary which he never makes he never um, makes he yeah. keeps shooting footage for it and yeah. nothing ever comes and as it. we learn there are like everyone there are everyone else in the high-rise is shooting footage as well or like taking yeah. photographs um but they're doing it for like pornographic reasons yeah we oh. like it's so bizarre there's a mo- there's a description in the novel that's like the true light of the high-rise is the flash of the polaroid Mm-hmm. and it's like yeah there's this like internal light there's there's this internal light this internal effect um the high rise is its own world um it is another universe it's another universe but it, it's not like it's it's our it's our it's own universe. so deeply rooted in the very nature of people right it's or at least in a in a very cynical way of looking at it it's the primeval Ballardian landscape that is kind of melting over these facades that that we've been able to construct out of glass and metal Mm -hmm. and like sleek leather i don't know yeah and Um, good taste good taste everywhere is good taste the true light of the high rise was the metallic flash of the polaroid camera that intermittent radiation which recorded a moment of hoped for violence for some later voyeuristic pleasure 
What depraved species of electric flora would spring to life from the garbage-strewn carpets of the corridors in response to this new source of light? The floors were littered with the blackened negative strips, flakes falling from this internal sun. of side A, critical mass. The empty salon continues on side B, after Ballard.